This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome. This week we're bringing you conversations about myths and legends and gods and monsters. In the Middle Ages, before Scandinavia was Christianized, the Vikings, the Norse people of the frozen lands of Europe, told a story of how the world was created. They said that there was once a realm of fire and a realm of ice. The fire melted the frost and it dripped down into the yawning void and it formed the first frost giant called Ymir. Then Odin and his brothers came along and they murdered Ymir and they pulled him apart and they made the earth and sky and oceans from his skull, his bones and his blood. The tale comes from Norse mythology, the stories that the Vikings told each other of the birth of the universe and of the gods that dwell in it, and of the day known as Ragnarok, when all the gods must die. Neil Gaiman has retold these myths in a book called Norse Mythology, which became a number one bestseller in the US and the UK. Neil Gaiman is one of the world's most popular authors, and we spoke in 2017, 10 years after our first conversation. Welcome back, Neil. Thank you. Thank you for having me back, Richard. Parents are not supposed to have favourite children. Neil Gaiman's not supposed to have favourite mythologies. So why are you stepping forward and claiming Norse mythology as your favourite? Oh, sometimes you have to actually confess that you do have a favourite. I mean, I love so many mythologies and I've, I've plundered, exploited and played with so many mythologies as a writer over the... 30 plus years that I've been writing. But I keep coming back to the Norse. I went to them in Sandman when I was writing comics. I went back to them, the Norse gods with American gods, about 17 years ago. And then 15 years ago, I wrote a book called Odd and the Frost Giants, which was just going back and doing a children's book with Odin and Loki and Thor in it, transformed into animals. And I think at that point, I probably, if you'd asked me, I would have told you that I was done. And then I had a fateful lunch. It was November the 10th, 2008, a date that I only remember because it happened to be my birthday. I met Amy Cherry from Norton Publishers, and she said, we love what you do with myths. Have you ever thought about just telling them straight? And it tells you how nervous I was, or, or, or unconfident I was, that it was probably a couple of years before I actually said to her, yes, I will give this a bash. Why? Why were you nervous? Because I make things up for a living. I've spent my life making things up. I invent stories. That's what I do. And I invent all sorts of stories, about children's stories, adult stories, comics, movies, TV. I'm, that's not the problem. But I'd never done something before where I had to retell and figure out how to make things my own. And so that was, I think the hesitation was going, well, how can I do this? How can I make them mine and yet be true to the story, the stories that Snorri Stolason gathered together and retold himself in a Christian era of Iceland of stories that had been told back before Christianity. So that was important to me. And then I probably spent, in truth, 
another couple of years reading and rereading Snorri's prose Edda and the, the poetic Edda, which are poem versions of this, and just trying to decide, well, how would I do this? What kind of voice would these stories have if I retold them? And thinking about it, which normally, if, if a writer tells you they're thinking about something, that just means they're doing other things. <laughs> and, but in this case, it was the thing that I would think about whenever I wasn't doing anything else. How and, would I write this? How would I write this? How would you tell this? What's the voice? And eventually, I thought, I can't start in the beginning. I'm just going to take one of the stories and see what happens. And I took the story that I call in here Freya's Unusual Wedding. It's, it's the story of Thor's hammer being stolen and him and Loki having to go and get the hammer back. Uh, Thor, very embarrassed and awkward in very, very bad drag, disguised as the beautiful Freya. And Loki, absolutely comfortable with having transformed himself into a beautiful maiden beside him and, and next to him. And I told that, and it surprised me because it was funny. And it surprised me because somehow the gods, they became bigger and they became more interesting than I had expected them to. But it also, it was like the story found its own vocabulary. And I found myself writing in short, crisp sentences, much like the way that the Icelandic sagas were built. They're built out of these, these like big granite building blocks. Mm, spare prose. Characters don't tell you what they're thinking. They do things and they say things. They don't ever have soliloquies. Exactly. And, that actually, when I was writing the book, proved both the challenge and the delight, which was what you get told by Snorri is so-and-so did this, and then so-and-so did this, and then so-and-so said this, and so-and-so did this. And sometimes it would become my task of gluing it together to find the mortar for the bricks would actually be to go, okay, we need to know what this person was thinking. We need to know why they did this. We need to know what happened when they did this. There's a story I told, The Mead of Poetry. And it's a glorious story that really goes all over the place. It begins with the Aesir and the Vanir, the, the two tribes of gods. They've been at war for a long time. Now they are making peace. And the final thing they do as part of their giant peacekeeping party is they all spit. They mingle their spittle into a giant urn. And then because this is the spit of the gods, so as not to let it go to waste. Freya the goddess shapes it into a new god formed of both Aesir and Vanir, both warlike and, and of home and hearth. And this god who's called Kvasir is the wisest and brightest and smartest and most poetic god there has ever been. And the gods all go, wow, we, we have a really great new god amongst us. And he then goes down onto the earth, into Midgard, and he walks around and spreads wisdom, which is fine until he runs into two very nasty dwarves, the Dark Elves, and they immediately go, ah, we have somebody so wise, 
what we have to do is murder him <laughs> and make mead out of his blood. And they promptly do that. And they murder him and they make mead out of his blood. And now the story becomes what happens to the mead and how the gods eventually get it back. But in the meantime, what happens to the dwarves and who they murder? And, and it's this giant story I, I say at the beginning that it does no credit to anybody and nobody comes out of the story well <laughs> the thing i like about the end of that story is that the, the poet mead is captured by odin he's changed himself into a bird he he's drunk a fair bit of it and he blows the last bit of it out of his ass at the end, and that's the bad poet's mead. That's where all the bad writing in the world comes from. You, you definitely feel that <laughs> Snorri, if that is actually, I don't know if that's, that's original to the saga, if that's something that Snorri put in, but you go, if that was a little Snorri edition... It's worth it's, it. It's, it's wor a, it's worth it, and B, mm. he must have listened to a lot of bad poets. Yes, I know, because it's got to be like, well, not many people really wanted to, to drink that, but, <laughs> but some still did anyway. That's pretty much the, 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 the final line. So there's all sorts of different ideas in that one story. One is that, that to be a poet is to be an honoured and, and to be clever is to be honoured and beautiful and amazing. But the other thing is no one likes a smart ass, and evil dwarves will kill you if you are too clever. You definitely feel all the way through this that you are being told a multiplicity of things on a multiplicity of levels. Odin, that's one of the very few stories that we have where Odin actually goes out and gets involved himself. And you see that the difference between Odin, head of the Norse gods, and Zeus, head of the Greek gods. Because if Zeus goes out and gets involved... There will be huge, amazing things, thunderbolts. Perhaps he will turn up in disguise and have sex with your daughter and then, and then elevate you to kinghood or, you know, huge things will happen. Odin, you do not want him to turn up at your house in disguise. <laughs> and if all that happens in the morning is all of your silverware has gone missing, you have got out of it. You are lucky. Let's go back a bit here, Neil. Let's start with how you first were introduced to the Norse gods. That was through Marvel Comics, the Marvel Comics store that we all recognise in the Avengers movie these days, or comics readers will recognise. Paint a bit of a picture of that Thor that was created by Jack Kirby and Stan Lee in uh, 1961. I was very lucky because I was reading the comics in English reprints, and it so happened. It might well have been 1967, but the comics that were being reprinted were being reprinted from the beginning. It was an English comic called Fantastic. So the first encounter I ever had with Thor is uh, mild-mannered and limping Dr. Don Blake trapped in a cave in Norway by a rockfall and finding a stick in the back of the cave, which he's using to batter against the rockfall, and it transforms him into Thor. And the stick is actually Mjolnir, his, his mighty hammer, which obviously meant that I spent the rest of my childhood banging sticks <laughs> against the ground, just on the off chance, because you never know. And that's not a joke. That is actually true. Oh, you I really did. did? Yeah. I really <laughs> did. You, know, you never know. It probably is just a story, but maybe. Um, but I immediately fell in love. I thought I love, I mean, the power of Jack Kirby's imagery was, was so remarkable and getting a hold of as many comics as I could, 
seeing what he did to Asgard, this huge science fictional city. And then when I saw a copy of Roger Lancel and Green's book, Myths of the Norsemen, at a friend's house, I immediately borrowed it and took it home expecting more Jack Kirby-ish Thor. And what I found was very, very different. What was that depiction of the Norse gods like? Well, Asgard is no longer a glorious science fiction city, and Thor is no longer a brilliant, powerful dude flying through the sky, his long hair flowing out, uh, long blonde hair flowing out behind him, being carried by his mighty hammer. Instead, this Thor is an over-muscled, not terribly bright, but incredibly strong god being pulled on a chariot drawn by two goats. See, my encounter with that Thor was through you, through that depiction of Thor in your Sandman comic series from the early 90s, where Thor, he was a guy, as you had him, with muscles the size of basketballs, flaming red hair and a beard, and he was a bit thick and a bit drunk the whole time. I loved the fact that when I put that Thor into Sandman, people all over the world turned around and said, well, we can't see why you're making fun of Marvel's Thor. And I would go, but I'm not. No. There is no making fun of Marvel's Thor. Marvel's Thor is a wonderful thing, and it's off there. All I'm doing is this is, this is Thor. This is the Thor of the Edders. This is the Thor that I'd fallen in love with through Roger Lancel and Green, who I'd then re-fallen in love with through Kevin Crossley Holland's retellings. And it's like, here, I am giving him and I'm giving their Loki and I'm giving that Odin back to the readers of Sandman as a gift and as a bit of love from me because I love them. You mentioned Snotty Sturluson there is a man close to my heart as well. Uh, he's the author of the Prose Edda, written, he wrote it in an Icelandic farmhouse sometime in the 13th century when Iceland had become Christian. Uh, this is a work that is now, what, nearly 800 years old. Were you surprised by how readable it is, how speedy and enjoyable and how much fun it is to read this bit of medieval Icelandic literature? I was delighted by how readable it is. One of the things that fascinates me about Iceland itself is the fact that people there can read Snorri in the same way that we read newspapers. The the language, it has evolved in many ways. It, it, you know, they, they, they have computers and things, but they can still go back and read the sagas. They were passed down orally from generation to generation to generation before they were ever written down. Do you think they retain that flavour of the campfire tale about them, the, the oral tradition? I do. What, what's, one of the things that's absolutely fascinating is why Snorri wrote them down. Because he's writing them down in a Christian world. Iceland already had the strangest relationship between Christianity and paganism of any country on this planet. They took a vote. They went off. They had a meeting of the great minds of Iceland. And the decision was, okay, are we going to stay pagans or are we going to become Christian? And one of their number went off and came back with the decision, which is they would become Christian, but they were allowed to be pagans in secret. It's absolutely legal to be, continue to be pagans as long as it is done secretly. But what you were getting was the poetry of Iceland used a lot of a kind of metaphor called a kenning. 
And a kenning is simply, for example, the simplest one, calling the sea the whale road. It is, a, it is a kenning. Everybody knows that when you talk about he travels the whale road, it means he was on the sea. There were kennings that referred to events in Norse mythology, things that the gods did, things that happened to the gods. And Snorri's rationale for collecting the poetry that he collected together, for retelling the stories, was that if he did not do this, those kennings would be impossible to understand. And as such, the poetry of Iceland would be incomprehensible. If you don't know that Freya's ransom is gold, then you don't know that when somebody refers to Freya's ransom, they're talking about gold or whatever. So you needed those kind of references in order to understand things. Vikings live in the English language. As, but as an Englishman, do you recognise this in elements of East End slang, you know, Cockney rhyming slang, that's always going around the object, talking around it? And it's in your prose all the time as well, that way of not directly addressing the thing itself, but talking around it in a way that's kind of artful and poetic, in fact. It is, although, of course, the joy of Cockney rhyming slang, like the joys of backslang, which came before Cockney rhyming slang, is they are designed to not be understood. The idea is you should be able to have a conversation with a friend and the policeman who is trying to overhear <laughs> you should not know what you're talking yeah. about. So that's where a lot of the stuff comes from. And the, the joy of rhyming slang, he's wearing a titfer. <laughs> and it's you actually leave off the rhyme, which I love. Yggdrasil is the tree, the mythological tree that lives in the middle of the cosmos of Norse mythology, the world tree. It sort of holds the whole universe together. There's a kenning in that as well, isn't there? It means Odin's tree, the hanging tree, because Odin's the hanging god. Reading that, I was reminded of a, a part of Robert Hughes's book, The Fatal Shore, where he talked about in, in Georgian England, the phrase for the gallows in those days was a horse foaled by an acorn. That was the name for the gallows. Well, it's if you think about Slepnir, Odin's horse, and you go an eight-legged horse, what is an eight-legged horse? And if you're being carried somewhere by an eight-legged horse and you suddenly go, That's, it's actually, it's a coffin. It's four men carrying a body somewhere. That's where you go on an eight-legged horse. We don't know how much influence Christianity has on what we have of the Norse myths. We cannot know because we don't know what they were like in a pre-Christian era. We know that the Vikings and the Germans and the North Germans and all of these people had cultural intercourse with all parts of the known world. We even know through the miracles of metallurgic examination that the best Viking swords came from Afghanistan. Isn't that lovely? Oh, yeah. The swords that they buried you with were local swords and not terribly good. But the sword that they were actually off fighting with, uh, they tended to be best Afghanistan blades. So we cannot tell that. But we can see echoes. We can see rhymes with Christianity. The idea of Odin hanging from a tree for nine days as a sacrifice to himself. The idea that his side gets pierced by his spear. All of that is obviously there's, there's some kind of Christian echoes and rhymes in there. And yet 
it's so much darker because this is all about the noose. This is all about the gallows. This is all about the kind of festivals they had in Uppsala where you would have a nine-day-long festival to Odin and on the first day you're hanging a dog and on the second day you hang a dog and a goat and by the end of it you have hung eight different kinds of animals and, of course, man as the, you know, the final animal that is sacrificed to Odin. Let's talk some more about Odin. You say he begins by sacrificing himself to himself? He hangs himself from a tree to honour himself? Is that what it is? Yes. There's a glorious sort of strangeness in Norse mythology anyway of the idea of who and what the gods are and to what extent they are men, men with superpowers, and to what extent they are gods and unknowable. Here, on the one hand, is Odin as a creator of the universe. He murders Ymir, the first created thing, this this enormous giant, hermaphroditic giant, who has sweated out all of the ancestors of the giants from under its arm and between its legs. And he creates... Odin and his two brothers, they make the world out of this dead god. So you're right there in a creation myth. You know, Odin is the father of us all, and he breathes the breath of life into the first man and the first woman who he and his brothers create from logs, an ash log and an elm log that they find. He he loses an eye. He willingly gouges out one of his own eyes to put in the well of Mimir, a frost giant, j- just for knowledge, just for knowledge. Do you think this is, is this a recurrent theme in Norse myths, the idea of sacrifice? You sacrifice a part of yourself to gain something. To gain, I, I think it's, it's, it's to gain something. But I love the fact that in Odin's case, it's for knowledge that we are not given. The knowledge that he got with his eye seems to have been a knowledge of events occurring at a distance, but also of the future. He gets dreams that tell him things that are going to happen. My favorite moment in the Norse myths, just as a tiny little moment, because as a novelist, I would have been so tempted to go in and fill it in. And instead, as a person retelling the myths, I just have to go, this is a moment of pure mystery. It's after Baldur, the most beautiful of all the gods, has been killed. Loki has come in, he has tricked Baldur's brother into murdering him with a dart made of the only thing which can kill Baldur. Everything else in the world, except the mistletoe, has taken an oath that it will not harm Baldur, but mistletoe they didn't bother with, so Loki kills Baldur with, with mistletoe. And you got a moment where Baldur's body is lying there about to be burned. And Odin goes and he whispers something into Baldur's ear. And this is one of the secrets of the gods. There's a later story, which I didn't actually retell in Norse mythology, where at one point Odin is in disguise as he normally is and is playing a sort of backwards and forth game with a giant and... His last question, they're doing a sort of riddle game, is what did Odin whisper in Baldur's ear? 
And suddenly the giant realizes that, okay, if you're being asked this question, the only person who can ask it is Odin. But we never know. See, right away, don't you entertain the notion of sacrifice with that? Like you think, what would I give up? What would I surrender to know what Odin had whispered in Balba's ear? Everything in Viking terms is about what you're giving up for other things. Much, much more so than myth structures we're familiar with, like the Greeks and the Romans. When I picture the Greeks and the Romans, in my mind, the first thing that pops into my head is the kind of thing you see when, you, when you're travelling on a plane and you look out the window, the tops of the clouds, the sun above it, all that sort of stuff. But I get a very different picture with the Norse gods. It's more like shadowy figures around a fire. Is it like that for you? It is. And for me, the Greeks and the Romans also, it's like figures on vases who are always naked or pretty much. It's the idea of the kind of stories where mostly what drives the story is somebody falling in love with themselves and their own reflection, sitting naked by the banks of a pool or seeing a beautiful goddess and chasing a nymph through the woods or whatever. And that's absolutely as far as you can get from the Viking stories, because the Viking stories, you'd freeze to death. (laughs) It's all about dressing up warmly and the world is out to kill you. The universe is going to kill you. How can we prevent this from happening? You chase a nymph through the woods, you end up dying in a glacier somewhere, don't you, in no time at all? You absolutely do. ABC Radio. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Podcast, broadcast, online. Well, you've just been to Iceland, I understand. Can you sort of see the landscape in these stories? Very much so. I mean, it's, it's the landscape of Iceland, the landscape of Norway, the, the world of the Northern Lights, the world of strange cold and strange heat. You definitely feel all of that. And also, even more than any of those things, the nights that basically last forever and the days that last forever. I was once in Iceland in early July and I remember waiting for sunset and about two o'clock in the morning it got a little bit dim as if the sun had gone behind a cloud for about an hour and then it was daylight, full daylight again and I thought this must be so strange because you have the eternal night and you have the eternal day And what you do with both of them is you tell stories. I've just been there in winter, and I asked some local Icelanders how they deal with that constant night, where it's just the opposite. The sun comes up at about, oh, 11, 10, 30, 11, sort of hovers, just bobs above the horizon, gives you a bit of pearlescent light, and then it just goes back to bed, defeated by the whole thing. And I asked them, how do you cope psychologically with the constant dark? And... My friend's sister said, oh, candles, we need candles. We need to sit around and talk with candles like this all the time. It is human contact that stops you going crazy. And it is that human contact 
with candles, with fires, with flames, singing songs. I love the fact that we have so many of these Icelandic sagas. And then you start realizing that none of the sagas started out written down. At some point, somebody would write them down and write down all of the bits. But they're all things that were told around a campfire. And here's the Orkneyinga saga, and it's the saga of the men of Orkney. And here's the bit where they kill the local bishop and what the king of Norway decides to do when they kill the bishop. And here's Duke Ragnar and his men, and they've decided to go on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. So they take three boats and they go off, and here's their adventures with pirates in the Mediterranean. They're wonderful, wonderful stories about people who do not feel removed. They do not feel historical. They're just, these are the stories of what happened to these people. And you realize they've been preserved by people telling the interesting bits in very, very long storytelling sessions. A year and a half ago when I was there, a friend of mine had a, told me a, a story from the sagas, Eitla Saga, which, and he told it in a way, because it's about loss, he told it in a way that was full of grief and, and mournfulness. But then his sister then told it to me, the same story to me, but it was full of trickery. It was like Loki was there in the story. It seems like it's a toolkit of a kind. These stories, these are things, there's all the elements, there are blocks, important elements that, you, that any storyteller is allowed to grab. I suppose I'm, I'm arriving at an argument not to be too precious about these things, and they're not set in, engraved in stone and, and not meant to be kept there and, and left untouched. My reaction to anybody who says, I, I read your Norse myths and they aren't my Norse myths, is great, tell your Norse myths. The main reason why I said yes all those years ago to Amy Cherry when she said, would you go out and would you do your own telling, was just realizing how many people have never encountered these stories. How many people don't know that Thor, that Loki, that Odin? How many people don't know the story of Baldur, don't know the story of the Mead of Poetry, don't know what happened when, when Thor and Loki and a young man called Thialfi go off to the land of the giants for a very peculiar night of what they think is eating, racing, and drinking and wrestling competitions and in which nothing is quite as it seems. For me, the joy is I get to go, okay, here are these old stories. They are part of the heritage of humanity. They are a shared glory. This is me telling them to you. I'm going to, because I am me, I'm going to tell the bits that I think work. I'm going to build them up into things. There was one moment in the stories where I actually realized that I was going to do a terrible injustice to what is probably my favorite of all the little Snorri stories. It's called the Lokisena. Uh, translated often as Loki's flighting, which is a point where Loki, very drunk and already having murdered somebody, sits around the table with all of the gods and goddesses and one by one says, you, you know, you did this terrible thing, you, you had sex with so-and-so, you stole this, and they then try and reply to him, and he insults the next one. And it's it's like a game of the dozens. It's this monstrous put-down, and you get to see the worst side of the gods. And when I started the book, I'm like, I am so looking forward to the point where I get to that. 
And then I got to that point and I went, you know, actually the way that I'm telling this story, if I interrupt things now and do four pages of Loki saying to Freya, don't give me that. Why should I listen to you? Everybody remembers the time that the gods opened your door and you were having sex with your brother. And then you looked up and saw us all. And then Freya, you farted. And uh, which has to be a record. Three fart references in one podcast. Um, and, uh, well, it's there in the Norse myths, I'm afraid. They are all there. And then I got to that point and I went, ah, actually, I can't. It will throw off the dramatic shape of what I'm trying to build here in the last days of Loki and this sort of feeling that we're on this inexorable slide. And I wound up just summarizing it in a paragraph and going, but that was, that was one of the things that drew me into looking forward to doing this in my own way. But now I have to give it up for the overall shape of what I'm doing. Loki. He strikes me as a lot like a psychopath. A creature who goes around, has no empathy whatsoever, likes to make people fall flat on their own faces, have a bad time, have things go wrong, just to amuse him, just because it amuses him. He's complicated. And that complication is a delight because you're going, well, okay, part of it is trickster. Part of it is the, the classical image of the trickster figure who is willing to get in there and stir things up in order to to change the status quo. Part of it is the fact that the idea that the Vikings had is very much that dying bravely is the best way that you can go and a good, brave death in the middle of a battle is the only thing that anybody could possibly want. And then you hit Loki and Loki has no desire to be killed in anybody's battle. He, I mean, he will go out at the end at, at Ragnarok, but he would much rather live. Yeah, he'll and scream and beg for his life, won't he? He will absolutely yeah. scream and beg for his life, and he will trick you. And there are these wonderful moments in the stories where you enter the story because Loki thinks he is smarter than everybody else. And then you're in trouble because Loki thought he was smarter than everybody else. And now you have to get out of trouble and you know he gets the gods into deep trouble he now has to get the gods out of it and it happens over and over again and it's always delightful it's like he not only gets to show how smart he is but he also gets his comeuppance without loki no change would come into that world either would it or technology for as well or technology there there, there are those moments where you go ah i have i've kind of seen this before and on the one hand Loki's final fate is so dark. He's tied up beneath the world with a, with a snake dripping poison into his face with his wife holding a bowl above his face. And every now and then she has to empty the bowl and then the poison from the snake is going to drip into Loki's eyes. You're definitely reminded of Prometheus who was punished for giving wisdom to man, was pu punished for giving fire, was punished for saying men can be like gods by being tied to a boulder and having an eagle rip out his liver once a day. It's the same kind of thing of, of these, these eternal torments that the gods inflict on those who are sort of of their number but not, but are willing to just create a little change and, and move away from the status quo. But, of course, the other joy for a writer, one reason why 
I wound up having probably much too much Loki in my stories, is he does change. Thor doesn't change. He's wonderful, but the Thor that you meet at the beginning of the sagas is the same Thor who dies at Ragnarok. The same goes for all of them. Their relationships may change, they may marry, they may fall in love, they may have children or whatever, but there's no change. Loki starts out as a sort of amusing figure who is of the gods, yet not of them, who is part of their story, but not quite, always a little bit removed, and who is going to get them into trouble and get them out of trouble again. By the end, he is their enemy. By the end, it is Loki and his three children who are the driving forces behind the end of the world. And you also feel, in some ways, that the gods have brought this on themselves. Maybe if they'd treated Loki better, maybe if they hadn't have tried to bind Fenris Wolf, maybe if they had somehow looked after things better, the end of all things would not quite have happened. But then you also think, well, maybe that's what Odin wanted. I'm with Neil Gaiman. He's the author of Norse mythology. It's his retelling of the Norse myths. Neil is, of course, the author of many best-selling books, including American Gods, Neverwhere, the Sandman series, and many other things as well. Neil, I'd love you to do a reading. Yeah, let me read you the first couple of pages of uh, one that I call Freya's Unusual Wedding. Thor, god of thunder, mightiest of all the Aesir, the strongest, the bravest, the most valiant in battle, was not entirely awake yet, but he had the feeling that something was wrong. He reached out a hand for his hammer, which he always kept within reach while he slept. He fumbled around with his eyes closed. He groped about, reaching for the comfortable and familiar shaft of his hammer. No hammer. Thor opened his eyes. He sat up, he stood up, he walked around the room. There was no hammer anywhere. His hammer was gone. Thor's hammer was called Mjolnir. It had been made for Thor by the dwarfs, Brock and Atri. It was one of the treasures of the gods. If Thor hit anything with it, that thing would be destroyed. If he threw the hammer at something, the hammer would never miss its target and would always fly back through the air and return to his hand. He could shrink the hammer down and hide it inside his shirt, and he could make it grow again. It was a perfect hammer in all things except one. It was slightly too short in the handle, which meant that Thor had to swing it one-handed. The hammer kept the gods of Asgard safe from all the dangers that menaced them and the world. Frost giants and ogres, trolls and monsters of every kind, all were frightened of Thor's hammer. Thor loved his hammer, and his hammer simply was not there. There were things Thor did when something went wrong. The first thing he did was ask himself if what had happened was Loki's fault. Thor pondered. He did not believe that even Loki would have dared to steal his hammer. So he did the next thing he did when something went wrong, and he went to ask Loki for advice. Loki was crafty. Loki would tell him what to do. Don't tell anyone, said Thor to Loki, but the hammer of the gods has been stolen. That said Loki, making a face, is not good news. Let me see what I can find out. Loki went to Freya's hall. Freya was the most beautiful of all the gods, 
Her golden hair tumbled about her shoulders, and it glinted in the morning light. Freya's two cats prowled the room, eager to pull her chariot. Around her neck, as golden and shining as her hair, glittered the necklace of the Breesings, made for Freya by dwarfs far underground. "'I'd like to borrow your feathered cloak,' said Loki, "'the one that lets you fly.' "'Absolutely not.' said Freya. That cloak is the most valuable thing I possess. It's more valuable than gold. I'm not having you wearing it and going around and making mischief. Thor's hammer has been stolen, said Loki. I need to find it. I'll get you the cloak, said Freya. There's so many questions you need answered from that moment. I mean, how responsible is Loki for what's gone wrong here? Is he lying or is he not lying? Well, in this one, gloriously, of course, he, he isn't lying. Um, and he heads out, meets an ogre called Thrym. And Thrym says, you know, what's, what's going on? What news? And Loki says, well, you know, things are, things are not going terribly well. We've lost the hammer. And Thrym's like, yes, I know. I have the hammer. And uh, if you bring me the beautiful Freya in marriage, I will give you the hammer back. So they go to Freya. Thor and Loki, and they say, we have this idea. You have to get married to Thrym. And she throws them out. The, the walls start shaking. Her cats go and hide. She tells them exactly what kind of a woman she is not. And they have to go off and figure out, okay, well, we, we obviously Freya said no, so how do we get the hammer back? Finally, Hemdal, the watchman of the gods, says, well... We're going to have to dress up Thor as, as Freya and hide his beard behind a wedding veil and send him off to get married. It's Thor in bad drag. You're not going to see that in uh, an Avengers movie anytime soon, sadly. I, uh, sadly, I, th I, think, I think that would be an amazing adventure, Avengers movie. Now, one of the most melancholic images you ever put in any of your Sandman comics was of Bast, the Egyptian cat goddess living in kind of a threadbare Egyptian gown in some dream palace somewhere, thin, not well, because the ancient Egyptians are long gone. There are very few worshippers of Bast, and so she needs those worshippers to stay alive and to be, to be sustained. This is a really interesting thought because I suppose what you're maybe saying here is gods are, are stories, and stories are real because we tell them to one another. We know that stories do exist in the world, and without a teller, the gods die. And I think that's, that's absolutely, it's not just a metaphor. We can look now at religions and gods who had enormous power and enormous sway and sacrifices were made to them and whole economies were, were designed to keep these gods happy and now they're only names to us. We barely even know their stories. Or if we tell their stories, it's as stories and there is nothing attached to them it's it's really interesting with the norse uh, mythology because now you have some people who who either believe or who have decided to believe in the norse gods and to go okay we are a satru we are we are these are the gods that we worship and before the book came out before norse mythology came out i got lots of rather worried communications from these people going are you going to be making fun of our gods. Are you going to be telling the stories the way they are? What are you going to be doing? And I said, well, just wait and see. And actually, now the book has come out. I've had a lot of those people saying, oh, yeah, those are, those are our gods. We, we feel you've, you've, you've done them good. Snorri Sturluson wrote the Prozetta. At the end of the Prozetta, 
he gives his own theory on why the gods exist. And he says, well, these were really once great kings and queens and they were famous and they died and they were missed and subsequently warriors when they went into battle would call on their spirit for aid. And then the memory of them as, as individuals, as human beings, just faded into nothingness. But the name remained and their graves were venerated. And this is how, this is how people become gods. What, what do you think of that theory? I think it's a lovely theory. I do love the uh, there there is definitely some kind of feeling that you get when you start meeting these people that they are both at the same time gods, huge ultra powerful unknowable beings, and at the same time there's a little village somewhere called Asgard and it's not it's not a big village and they've got a big hall and Odin is the king and Thor is the big muscly guy and Loki is the smart one who's getting them into trouble and Baldur's the good looking one that all the girls are falling for. These people are people. And I think because Snorri had evolved this as his theory, that kind of transmits itself into his tellings and then transmits itself through. But I love the idea that the gods were once people whose names lived on. It's all the fault of the mead of poets and the ones who drank the good stuff, who then go out and spread the stories. The Avengers movie was a gigantic international blockbuster. Your book is number one. It has. It's been very strange. Mm. Um, in terms of books of mine that I expected to blockbuster... This is probably the least... Ex <laughs> uh, I, I thought this would sell like a short story collection. Well, short story collections sell about a third of what a novel sells. But this one, just everybody loves it. So it went in straight in at number one in the US and the UK. I think right now it's number two, and it's still selling. It's, it's remarkable. You add to that the fact that the Lord of the Rings books and movies draw heavily on these stories created by Snotty Sturlis and Wagner's Ring Cycle draws heavily on these stories from the prose editor and the poetry. Does it, does it astonish you to think you can find the source for all these things, these things that are huge in the culture right now, to a work that was written in a lonely Icelandic farmhouse in the 13th century? Not only does that delight me, but it delights me that we know who Snorri was. We know his role as a statesman, his role in Icelandic history. We know his descendants. We know his bloodline. I, I think all of that <laughs> is wonderful. And without him, our culture would be infinitely the poorer. Sometimes it's worth stopping and thinking about the cultures that we've lost and the the folklore and the gods and the religions who we really don't have, the wonderful stories that went extinct and nobody told them anymore. And we should be so grateful that we had Snorri. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Podcast, broadcast and online. I spoke to Neil Gaiman in 2017. abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. 
For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.